From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, how the pandemic hits working moms especially hard. I just didn't make as much as my husband, and so it just all becomes a number game, and it made more sense for me to stay home. Then, how to fix a leak in space. You can think of that crack that appeared as, you know, between you and infinity, right? I mean, there's nothing out there. Later, a Colorado filmmaker trains his lens on LGBTQ refugees who fled oppression abroad. You'll be targeted from everyone, extremists or the government, even your family. But moving to the U.S. brings its own challenges. And for Dia de los Muertos, a Pueblo woman lays out her father's favorite things. I put some cigarettes for my dad and his Pepsi and his Twinkie. The upcoming elections could be the most crucial in recent memory, and that means Colorado Public Radio has an even greater responsibility to help you separate facts from fiction. Your financial support ensures that unbiased, fact-based journalism is delivered to Colorado voters so we can all make informed decisions when filling out our ballots. Thank you for making the leap from listener to listener member at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado's unemployment rate dropped in September, but one group in particular continues to struggle, working moms. For them, the pandemic's been a double whammy. Many lost jobs. Others were asked to work from home just as childcare evaporated and schools went remote. The result is that women with children are dropping out of the workforce in staggering numbers. Stephanie O'Callaghan is a nurse in Denver. She has a toddler and a five-year-old with special needs. It really sunk in when schools closed. And at the same time, my unit at the hospital stopped doing elective procedures. So it became pretty clear within the first couple of days that I was probably just going to end up having to stay home with the kids. And before I knew it, I was a stay-at-home mom (laughs) with two kids and doing remote learning. So, yeah, it's been it's been a real challenge and not something that I ever pictured myself doing. Indeed, early on, the cancellation of elective surgeries meant O'Callaghan had less work. Thousands of Colorado women are in the same boat. And while dads also feel job pressure, women bear the brunt of it, facing the same dynamics as O'Callaghan's family. You know, I, I feel like for a lot of families... So much of the stress of childcare and, you know, the dynamics and logistics of that fall on moms. And I think in a lot of households, I mean, mine in particular, um, I just didn't make as much as my husband. And so it just all becomes a number game. And it made more sense for me to stay home and for him to keep working. You know, he doesn't feel the impact of child care as much as I do or the school schedules. I'm just a default parent. When when something happens, they call me first and I get all the notifications for school and I am in charge of all those logistics. So, you know, I felt like that decision was, was on my shoulders. 
In Colorado, much of this data about working moms has been gathered by the nonprofit Common Sense Institute. Kristen Strom is the group's president and CEO. Kristen, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Can I have you start by reflecting on what you heard there from Stephanie O'Callaghan? I mean, I gather this sounds familiar. Too familiar. I'm a working mom, too. So um, I think, you know, for a generation, women have made tremendous gains in the workforce. In the late 1950s, only one third of women worked. And now, you know, look ahead, it's over 50% of women the last few years that were in the workforce. But our ongoing research really paints a grim picture for women in Colorado with kids. And the pandemic, this recession, really threatened all of that progress for Colorado's working woman. It's interesting how Stephanie put it, that she's the default parent. Uh, Will you say a few words about that? Yeah, what we found in our research is that Throughout the pandemic, women with kids are being disproportionately impacted, which is why economists and experts across the nation are dubbing this recession the she-session. The she-session. Mm-hmm. And specifically in Colorado, it's interesting to note that our latest numbers in September show that 42,000 women have left the labor force completely, which means that they aren't even looking for a job any longer. And I understand that folks who leave the labor force aren't even counted in unemployment. They're not reflected then in the numbers, correct? It's a really great point, Ryan. We track two different numbers, unemployment and labor force participation, because the unemployment numbers don't capture people that aren't proactively looking for work. And a lot of these women have completely left and aren't even looking for work. The state's unemployment rate is getting better, 6.4% in September, down from a high above 12% this summer. But what is the evidence that moms are leaving the workforce? What do you base this claim on? Yep, it's looking at the labor force participation rate specifically. And at the end of September, women with kids was down 5% from earlier February 2020 numbers. So again, you know, women with kids are the ones that are fleeing the workforce. And I think to Stephanie's comments, a lot of that has to probably do with child care issues and or maybe perhaps their jobs have been, you know, removed. But it's at one point in Colorado, 180,000 women were out of the workforce completely, not looking for work. Because of the pandemic. Because of the pandemic. What do numbers show for women without children? What's been the impact on them? Good okay. news. And you have to understand, you know, when we're looking at this month over month data, it, it, it tends to be quite volatile, mm. which is why, you know, as economists, we're looking at longer term trends over a few months. I think volatile is a good way to describe 2020. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Definitely. Um, but what we're seeing is that women actually without kids are, ent- are at higher labor force participation rates than they were earlier in 2020. Same with men across um, without kids and men with kids. So there is some slack being picked up somewhat, um, and you can see which group is being impacted the most. The mom we heard from earlier said her breaking point came early in the pandemic as soon as schools closed. Is there any way to know that this situation is predominantly about child care? You know, McKenzie, which does great work, just came out with a new study released at the end of September and found that 17 percent of mothers have reduced their work hours because of school and child-rearing issues. I think right there that's evidence enough. Another great economist out of Michigan stated that child care could be an economic issue and crisis that we feel for over a decade. 
And I think in order to get our economy back on track, we have to figure out how to get women with kids back into the workforce. And a lot of that's going to be solving this childcare issue. One thing that's interesting is the age difference. Women over 35 are affected more than younger women. Why might that be? You know, we've tried to break that down a little. Unfortunately, um, we can't segment the data too much. There's just not enough data. However, I can probably draw a few conclusions, as can the listeners. Okay. Um, First and foremost, women after 35 probably have kids, you know, in elementary, middle school age. So they're maybe having to stay home. Perhaps um, other industry a, a sectors. A daycare isn't is correct, really right? In the cards for them, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we're, you know, it will be interesting this last week after the DPS announcement, where now we're going back virtual. What the October numbers are going to show as well. Well, and we also know that we are either on the cusp of or in the midst of a, another wave correct. of COVID nineteen. Uh, heaven only knows what that will do for shutdowns and how that might further affect the labor force. I mean, speaking of volatility, just the school environment alone, whether it's going to be in person, whether it's going to be remote, the fact that that changes in some spots throughout the state adds even more uncertainty, uh, I, I suppose, especially for women with children who don't necessarily have that flexibility built into their job. And I think that's the action call, right? We need for stakeholders, policymakers, business owners to come to the table with women to find real solutions, tailor policy that meets the challenges that the working woman has right now with children, because otherwise we're going to let this pandemic undo a generation of progress for women in the workforce. It's interesting you say that, because why would you make long-term changes to address what hopefully is a short-term situation? In other words, the pandemic is something that we hopefully will address with a vaccine. Why would you make systemic changes in that environment? Help me understand that. Because we know that there are long-term repercussions when, when women leave the workforce. When women are sidelined, they're less likely to return to work. They lose out on upward mobility. They might miss that promotion. And they're less likely, as I said, to return to work completely. Um, one study found that women's gains since the 1980s has resulted in over $2 trillion to our economy. And then if levels had remained what they were in the 1970s. So you think about that, too. We, we need to come up with solutions to get women back to work. So this may be a shorter term issue, the pandemic, but the effects you are saying could go on for generations. You're, ta- you're talking about the loss of opportunity, the loss of earning power. Exactly. For years. I, I want to hear one more time from Stephanie O'Callaghan. This is the Denver nurse with two children who left her job when schools closed. She worries about being able to find a job after taking an unexpected break. Yes, I'm already feeling a little rusty. And I just think to myself, what if this goes on for another year? If you don't use it, you lose it. And I feel like my appeal as an applicant for some of these positions continues to decline the longer I'm out of the workforce. Does that echo what you're trying to convey to us? Exactly. I think that's spot on. And that's what, you know, historical data has shown. 
Okay, I want to turn to a different question, which is what employers are seeing and what they might do to help women stay in the workforce. Kristen Lessman is CEO of the Colorado Women's Chamber of Commerce. Kristen, welcome to our conversation. Hi there, Ryan. Thank you for having me. What are you hearing from businesses? Are are they concerned about losing women employees? Well, absolutely. And much of what we're talking about this morning, um, what we've been seeing pre-pandemic is just a bigger problem now. It's often referred to as the leaky pipeline, right? So women leaving the workforce due to duties at home is no new problem. Mm -hmm. It's just bigger now because there's not access to care for children. So this is exacerbating underlying issues, pre-pandemic issues. Yeah. So companies have been trying to address this for a while, but now they're, you know, fast forward doing more and more to try and keep women in the workplace. What were they already doing and what are they doing now to kind of supercharge those efforts? I think it's always been an effort for organizations to to help women stay connected in the workplace. Employee resource groups are a huge um, support that companies, many companies offer. What are those? So an employee resource group, especially for women, allows women in an organization to connect and help one another navigate the workforce as women. And so we see a lot of those as a way to, you know, provide a support group for women to create a tribe to help navigate and get through this. Um, We've seen more and more companies now offering more flexibility, whereas that wasn't an option before. So working from home, creating flexible work hours, um, more access to mental health care on site. Um, We even have organizations that are trying to bring child care on site and um, even providing a stipend for care to many employees. And why are employers doing that? What do they see as the inherent benefits of making sure that their female employees, and especially ones with kids, are supported? Well, you know, a lot of organizations simply state that it's the right thing to do. But what we see is that when companies have um, women in key roles at the top, they perform better financially. Um, There's more diversity in the workplace as a result of women being allies in key roles. So it's in their best interest to do that. So and as as, um, Kristen Strom referred to, the economy is better with that spending in it. Are there any scenarios under which women without children see the support that exists for women with children and that that creates a certain amount of um, discomfort in the workplace? Like why why is one employee getting support, getting time, getting flexibility, whereas others might not be? Is that a dynamic that workplaces have to... It absolutely is. I think, you know, but a lot of the things that women are asking for, the flexibility, you know, the the time off for care, the ability to live a life outside of work creates balance in the workplace for all populations, not just women. And so organizations that are successful at implementing this are um, seeing that it benefits all employees. Women are just the ones that are asking and driving it. So the culture change is a tide that kind of lifts all boats, you're saying. Yes. Can you give us an example of a company in Colorado that Mm -hmm. you think has met this challenge rather well? Well, you know, it's a new company to Colorado, but certainly VF Corporation is something that we're seeing leading the charge. Oh, this is the outdoor apparel company. Yeah, the North Face, the the Jansport. Vans, Mm -hmm. maybe, Mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So they're looking at how to provide on 
on-site care. They're looking at, you know, mental health resources, more flexibility, um, wherever they can. And they're leading the way. And I think what's interesting about it is they're not just leading the way, but what we're seeing more and more is big employers coming together through organizations like ours that want to learn from one another to see what's working and really measuring the outcomes. Because no one, you know, there's lots of research out there that shows, you know, what the issues are. But I don't think we've quite figured out the how to solve the issue. So measurement and connecting with other corporations to see what's working is key right now. Hmm. I do think the pandemic has taught so many of us that we can work remotely, that we can work flexibly and right. still be as productive, maybe even more productive. Um, we've certainly found out what what is possible for a radio outlet, a news outlet, if we're all working remotely. Do you think the pandemic has taught us more about what's possible in this regard? I think that there's various studies. I think that some studies show that people are being more productive working at home. Um, Some studies are showing that productivity is dropping. I think Mm. the lack of connection is, is really hurting us. I think the unfortunate thing about that is it's great that companies are willing to offer flexibility, but oftentimes we see women in an entry level and administrative roles where flexibility just isn't an option Mm. in those types of roles. And that could be another reason why we see women leaving the workplace because they have to choose because they make less. Kristen Strom from Common Sense Institute, reflect on a bit of what you have heard so far in this conversation with Kristen Blessman. I think Kristen's spot on and I, I really applaud she and the Colorado Women's Chamber of Commerce for bringing together these companies because, again, we need to figure out the solution and that's been lacking so far. What would be your dream solution? I think solving the childcare issue, that's number one, especially as, you know, we're entering another wave of COVID-19 cases and schools are closing and going remote again. It's hard for women to have stability to be able to work full time when they have to adapt. And it's really important to note that childcare is astronomically expensive. It can be as much or more as college tuition. That's right. A lot of women, a lot of families, um, you know, can't afford that right now, especially during this pandemic they might have been impacted. Um, you know, one or one of them might have lost a job, and it's childcare is super expensive, and so solving that is key. I want to thank you both for being with us. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Kristen Blessman is CEO of the Colorado Women's Chamber of Commerce, and Kristen Strom is CEO of the Common Sense Institute. Up next, fixing a leak in space. The International Space Station was leaking for a year, and astronauts only just found the source. The Russian space agency Roscosmos reports that the mystery was solved with a bag of tea. Few people understand what it takes to protect astronauts better than David Klaus. He's a specialist in space habitats and a professor of aerospace engineering at CU Boulder. And David, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. A hole on the ISS sounds ominous. I mean, in the movies, everyone would be sucked into space. You've worked on everything from the space shuttle to space suits. How common are leaks? Well, leaks are always present. It's more a matter of concern of what the cause of the leak is. Uh, If it's big enough, absolutely, it would suck the astronauts out into space the way that you see in Hollywood. But usually these are much smaller than that. Smaller, I don't know, give me something to compare it to, a dime? No, much smaller than a dime. These are micro cracks. These are maybe a millimeter. I I, I haven't seen specifically on this one, 
you know, there's a lot of debris flying around in space from spent rocket boosters and natural phenomena, micrometeorites. Uh, so there's always a risk of getting hit by something going 20,000 miles an hour different from your speed. There's also potential for stress fracture cracks over time as the space station is up there and going through hot and cold cycles from thermal expansion. There's a lot of seals where the modules are connected around the windows, for example, or potential leak sources. Mm. And there's even some valves that are intended to vent overboard that if they weren't completely sealed up would also be a source of leak. So it sounds like there's some acceptance of micro leaks, if you will, but there are some you have to go after. Why, why would you go after this one in particular, do you think? Well, the, the real immediate concern is not so much for the health or the life of the crew as it is just the loss of the gas. So it's got to be you have to bring up additional oxygen and nitrogen to refill the canisters where you're losing more than you originally intended. Oh, and in this case, it was significant enough that that was a concern. And, you know, you described... Uh, the space station a bit there, it's modular. It's like a gerbil habitat. And my understanding is that they closed off different sections and then tested the pressure in each one using a device to find the source of the leak. Just explain how that works. Yeah, so there's a few different things, they tools they have, I guess, at their disposal. For starters, you, you can notice the long-term trend of gas loss. Now, there's some accepted amount I think this was getting up to a one to three pounds of air per day. Wow. So initially, you start to see there's some concern with more gas being used just by monitoring the data. From that point, you're correct. You can isolate each module one at a time, seal it off, stop it, and then listen or measure the pressure decay there to see if that module is leaking. And this is how they ultimately narrowed it down to the, to the Russian Svezda service module initially. Do you buy this story about the tea leaves? Well, it's interesting. You know, I've seen that in the news. I haven't gotten absolute confirmation, but it makes sense in a way if you're floating anything inside the spacecraft and you can keep the airflow to a minimum by turning off the fans in that local area. It would make sense that these something light like that would be drawn toward the source of the leak. So in principle, yes. In practice, I can't verify that. Okay. But that would be a visual cue. And I think you mentioned earlier an audio cue for a leak. Uh, just explain that a bit. Yeah, th this is a technology that's used not just for leak detection, but it's also being explored to look for other potential failures in the spacecraft. And it basically, it's... It's listening with a high-frequency acoustic monitor so that, you know, when you hear air rushing out, you can hear it, right? But if it's very small, uh, it's above the threshold of human hearing, but this device can hear that noise. NASA's teamed up with the speaker company, Bosch, recently. There's an experiment on board right now. I believe it's already functioning. I'm not sure if it's up and running. Huh. But it's just a device that's going to listen to the sounds of the space station. And over time, you start to notice if something sounds different. And when it sounds different, that gives you an indication that something's wrong. Could be a leak, could be a bearing going out on a fan or a pump, for example, or other different things that might be going on that would result in a noise change. The audio guy in me is really nerding out to this, David. Um, <laughs> talk about a tagline for Bosch, right? Like you're shopping for Bluetooth headphones and they get to say, the official... <laughs> you know, audio crew for NASA. Well, let's talk about how do you find and fix a leak in the International Space Station? Well, so first you have to think about what it's made of, right? It's, it's an aluminum skin that protects the crew against the vacuum of space. And it's, it's only on the order of 
three or four millimeters. It, it's pretty small. Yeah. I was around the other day with a sheet of aluminum foil. And if you, you pick up a sheet of foil and you fold it in half on itself seven times, that's roughly the thickness of the pressure vessel that the station has. Wow. Now, outside of that, there's another 10 centimeters or so of additional material that's intended to protect against the uh, these micrometeoroids and orbital debris that are flying around. So if you think of, you know, if, you ever, if you've ever repaired a flat tire on your bicycle, for example, you ultimately listen for it. You know, you can pump it up a little bit and listen for the air. If you can't find it that way, you, you might look for uh, putting it underwater and looking for bubbles. Oh, yeah, bubbles. In this case, you know, people have asked, can't you use some sort of a bubble leak check and let things flow out? But because you've got that other 10 centimeters on the outside, it would just get dispersed and you still wouldn't have a, an actual location of the leak. So you're trying to patch a leak, not so different than patching a bike tire in a way, except you're on the inside of the tire now. So in a way that works to your advantage because instead of having to hold the pressure in, the pressure is actually helping to hold the seal up against the leak. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. So my understanding is right now they put some Kapton tape on this and this is just a special tape that's very resistant to low pressure and temperatures. Uh, from the inside, you basically just tape the hole up. Now, I understand that's a temporary fix, and you'll probably have something more like an epoxy or, or some sort of a, a metal plate that would go over that. So that, that's the latest I've heard, though, was the Kapton at least reduced, if not completely stopped the, the leak right now. That's not something I could pick up at Lowe's or Home Depot. Actually, it is. Have you ever seen that gold-looking tape? That, that's used all over the spacecraft. Okay, well... I just revealed my relationship to home improvement, I guess. Uh, you know, I, I just had never thought until this point, David, about the thickness of the envelope of, of the International Space Station and really comparatively how little material protects the astronauts aboard from, you know, space outside. I mean, it's, it's really a remarkable thought. Well, and if you think about, like, you've seen these Mylar balloons, right, that are inflated. They're really, really thin. Yeah. It doesn't take all that much to hold the pressure in. A lot of the structure mass is actually driven by being able to withstand the launch loads when you're, you know, you're experiencing three or four Gs on the way up. So you don't want the structure to collapse on itself at that time frame. It doesn't take too much to hold the pressure, but then there's a lot of other things that drive the structural requirements. Yeah, I guess it's just a reminder of one's fragility aboard the International Space Station. Although I don't want to overstate that either. Well, you can think of that crack that appeared as, you know, between you and infinity, right? I mean, there's nothing out there. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. That was a fun, that was a pleasurable morning. David Klaus, formerly with NASA, is professor of aerospace engineering at CU Boulder. He specializes in space habitats. In some countries, people who are LGBTQ live in constant fear. We had to be careful all the time. They just come and take you from your home and they kill you. A Colorado filmmaker documents their lives as they seek refuge in the United States. Unsettled is produced and directed by Tom Shepard. He speaks with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Tom, welcome to the show. So great to be here. Thank you for having me. The film follows several stories of refugees who come to the U.S. after persecution in their native countries. One is Subi Nahas, who arrives from Syria. 
just feels difficult to talk about it. You have to hide not to lose everything. You'll be targeted from everyone, extremists or the government, even your family. Again, that's Subi from Syria. And you also follow a lesbian couple from Angola and a man who's gay from the Democratic Republic of Congo. They all initially come to San Francisco. How common is it for people in other countries to feel that their lives are threatened because they're LGBTQ? Unfortunately, Andrea, the persecution has only gotten worse. When we started researching this project in 2014, you know, LGBTQ civil rights in this country and many Western countries were accelerating quite quickly. Unfortunately, you were starting to hear more stories of gay men being thrown off of buildings by extremist mm-hmm. groups, stories of lesbian corrective rape in Africa. And, and in many cases in these countries, it's state-sponsored homophobia. So the police are not going to protect you, and often these folks are experiencing violence at the hands of their own family members. And in Sue B's case, uh, discrimination against folks who are LGBTQ was always present in Syria. Um, but I understand when al-Qaeda came to Subi's village, things got a lot worse. Talk about how his life changed then. He was a student. He had grown up in a fairly affluent family who had connections to the Assad regime. So the circles in his life were, you know, he had good education. His siblings had gotten educated. He had to stop going to school. He had heard stories that this group, this al-Qaeda group, had started to kidnap gay men, that some of them had been killed. So basically, his life came to a standstill. And at some point in that story, he started experiencing violence from his own father. And he said, I just can't you know, live here and survive anymore. And so he hired a taxi cab who took him to Lebanon. He lived there for a while, couldn't afford to live in Beirut, and ultimately went to Turkey, which is where he was able to go to the United Nations office and apply for refugee status. And it was about a year after that that he was resettled in San Francisco. And that's that's when we met him. What's the range of laws in these countries when it comes to the LGBTQ community? You know, even currently, over 70 countries outlaw being gay or lesbian or transgender, and about seven of those still employ the death penalty. So if you're growing up gay or you have questions about your own sexuality, you really have to be on guard. Mm. And is there a country that seems to be the most brutal where it's common for people to flee to the U.S.? I mean, in the U.S. press, we've heard many more stories in the last years about Uganda in Africa. And of course, there's been a lot of coverage of that. But we follow Junior, a, a gender nonconforming person from, from the Congo, as you said earlier. And, you know, his own mother was kind of a fundamentalist Christian preacher. And so folks coming from places like Congo or in Angola, where Shine and Marie and our film are from, less known places, have a harder road in terms of applying for asylum because you don't have in the press a kind of documentation of homophobia. So when you get before your asylum officer or you get before an immigration judge, there isn't as much in the literature for them to sort of reference or point to. So sometimes that can be harder and you'll you'll find folks from those countries maybe trying to get to Kenya, uh, Nairobi, which is, of course, not super friendly to LGBT, but more open in a place, you know, as a country of transit that might be a little bit safer. 
There's also the female couple, Marie and Cheyenne, who come from Angola. Their story about how they were treated by family members in Angola, it's really hard to believe. I moved in with Marie. Her mother didn't like the situation. She brought some cooked food for us, so we ate. In the middle of the night, we woke up sweating, like with diarrhea, really bad vomiting. And uh, like it was really, we thought it, we, we would die because it was really, really bad, really bad. So they actually think the mother poisoned the food in some way. And as we learn, it's not easy for these women to be granted refugee status in the U.S., as you refer to. How common is it for the United States to take in refugees from the LGBT community? When we started this project at the end of 2014, 2015 in the Obama administration, the U.S. resettled more refugees than most countries in the world. At that time, it was about 115,000. When Donald Trump was elected in 2016, he cut that number in half each year of his administration. So now we're down to about 18,000, a historical low. So um, you know, and Donald Trump ran on a kind of rhetoric that was anti-immigrant and anti-refugee. And so, you know, his supporters are quite happy from their vantage point. He's been quite successful in kind of implementing that rhetoric. And, you know, in addition, um, women have a very, very difficult time in some of these cultures because they're expected to get permission from their fathers or husbands or uncles. So for these two women to have had the wherewithal to kind of cultivate this loving relationship and then somehow get out on a student visa, get to the United States, and then go through what really ended up being a kind of three-year adjudication process is, you know, nothing short of miraculous, really. I mean, it really takes a lot of guts, yeah. what they went through. And the other thing, Andrea, is that, the, you know, the re refugee resettlement model in this country, in the U.S., has always been predicated on families, like a family will flee a war-torn part of Iraq. And if they come to the San Francisco Bay Area, where I live, they'll immediately get connected in with other sort of Iraqi Americans. You know, maybe it's a mosque or a grocery store. But if you're a gay Iraqi guy and you arrive in the Bay Area, like, Possibly the last people you want to see are other Iraqis, you know, perceived or not, you think that there's you're going to experience the same vitriol. So LGBTQ refugees are not fleeing with families. They're often fleeing from their own families. And it's, you know, it puts them at much higher risk, we found in our film, for isolation, for continued trauma, for repetition of that trauma. Um, you know, they have a real unique story. And I think most Americans don't know it. And on that same note, you follow uh, this man named Junior from the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, non-gender conforming, actually. He ends up being taken advantage of by many meets who offer him a place to stay. And he has high hopes about finding a job, but is disappointed to end up working in food services at a baseball stadium. All refugees have adjustment struggles, and you just talked about this lack of family around. What are some of the other challenges that folks face when they come to the U.S.? Well, this is a really interesting story. You know, the State Department and the Department of Health and Human Services gave a grant to resettle LGBTQ refugees specifically in San Francisco, looking at San Francisco as a kind of, you know, a promised land for queer people. And of course, there are so many representations of that in the media. But, you know, try living in one of the most expensive cities in the country, right. if not the world, on a refugee benefit of $350. And you really sort of feel that in junior 
your story, as you were alluding to. So sometimes the issue of sexual orientation or gender identity really took a backseat to the real just sort of survival issues and some of the race and class issues of living in a, in a city like San Francisco right now. There's this triumphant moment in the film where Subi from Syria gets to travel to New York to speak with the UN Security Council about the discrimination he faced. My name is Subhina Haas. I'm a refugee and I am gay. I'm here to recount to you what I experienced and witnessed as a gay man in my country. You know, I wonder as time's gone on, and you said um, during your time making this film, things have changed, but um, how much has changed in these countries to improve life for people who are LGBTQ? Yeah, it's a great question, and I'm glad you played that clip. That was a banner moment. You know, Subi had only been in the country three months, and he was invited by then, you know, Ambassador Samantha Power to come and speak as an openly gay person to the Security Council of the UN, and that was a first. And what I understood from speaking with Ambassador Power in the years following is that that was quite catalytic. When you had the murder of gay people in Orlando at Pulse nightclub a year later, the Security Council came together for the first time and made a very specific statement um, around homophobia. And that was a first. And that definitely has an influence that we have a long ways to go. And it really does have, you know, to do with leadership and who is, you know, providing leadership in countries like the U.S. And so I'm encouraged. I'm hearing Joe Biden, candidate Biden, now talk about bringing that refugee cap back up to 115,000 or greater, and even just symbolically, what that sort of telegraphs to other countries around the world is quite hopeful to me. Now, the U.S. is hardly a perfect role model. Um, what more could this country be doing to change policy elsewhere? Well, that's that's a good question. You know, there's this tension, um, and you see this play out among nonprofits and NGOs of folks who are working on country conditions in those very difficult places and empowering activists. And then you have sort of refugee rights and refugee resettlement organizations who are supporting people who make that very difficult decision to have to leave. And I think we're still kind of in that that crux right now. But I think the more people just learn about refugees, I mean, I didn't, when I started this film, I didn't even know the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker. And I think, you know, most people, maybe they've heard a lot about the Syrian refugee crisis, the migration crisis, but how many Americans have actually met a refugee or an asylum seeker? And I think that was really our goal is to just humanize the lived experiences of, of these folks. And the more people that understand, the more then they might speak out, the more they might vote for refugee-friendly policies. And if you're a refugee, you have permission to come in. If you're an asylum seeker, you come in, but you wait to be given refugee status. That's correct. Refugees get their status outside of the U.S. and then can be resettled here. Asylum seekers have to somehow get in the country, whether it's a student visa, whether it's a tourist visa, and then they have to get a pro bono attorney to adjudicate their case within the U.S. within the U.S. immigration court system. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure. Thanks for having us. My colleague Andrea Dukak is speaking with Tom Shepard, the filmmaker behind Unsettled, Seeking Refuge in America. The documentary has won several awards at film festivals across the country. Shepard also directs the Youth Documentary Academy in Colorado Springs. Unsettled streams through Wednesday at worldchannel.org. 
And we'll be right back with how one Pueblo family brings a lot of life to Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. For years, Lookout Mountain has been the place to see what's happening throughout the Front Range. Hi, I'm Daniel J. Schneider, editor of the daily CPR newsletter, which takes its name and inspiration from that mountain. The Lookout. Each weekday, The Lookout gives you a closer look at issues that affect Colorado. Every edition highlights top stories, conversations, and other important news, as well as some fun and quirky stuff. Sign up to get The Lookout each weekday in your inbox at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today's the end of Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead, a time when many Coloradans celebrate loved ones who've passed away. We asked Pueblo native Victoria Obregón why Day of the Dead is important to her. She also shared some music that reminds her of the holiday. My name is Victoria Obregón. I work at Colorado State University, Pueblo, at the Center for International Programs and Inclusive Excellence. What I remember about Dia de los Muertos was how we remembered our loved ones. So I remember going to my great aunt, my Thea Angela's house, and opening her door to her bedroom, which had all her santitos, um, like Santo Nino de la Toche, the Virgen de Guadalupe, and all the loved ones passed away and she would pray for them and pray for them that they would go to the next place in life and safely, safely be there and safely return to us for this day. What I smelled was frankincense, candles, Walmart candles always remind me of my Aunt Angela. And then on my dad's side, we'd go visit my great-grandma Flora, and she would tell us the stories about the loved ones that had passed and what they did and what they would love to eat. Dio de los Muertos always felt like it was my birthday season because I have a birthday close to Dio de los Muertos. So family would gather and we would gather together and we would remember loved ones. But I thought it was just a birthday party for me. My grandparents would come from Kansas and they would celebrate like two to three weeks with us. And so I thought every day was my birthday when they were here. Being young did not make me aware of the somberness that might have been happening through my family. But now that I'm an adult, there is some somber moments celebrating Dio de los Muertos and celebrating my loved ones that have passed that are a little bit closer to my heart. But there's also joy in me able to share that with my daughter, with my family. My family sides come from two, not two different worlds, but two different places, but also meet at the same place, which is really beautiful. Uh, my maternal side, my grandmother comes from Juarez, which we really practiced her her culture and she shared her culture with us. And my paternal side has been in northern New Mexico and southeast Colorado for many, many generations, four or five generations, even more than that. So the borderlands of Juarez and how they celebrate um, Dia de los Muertos was very more intimate with family. And then also with my paternal side, we celebrated with family through the church and so each one was just a little different but they also combined who i am today 
Ay de mí, llorona, llorona, llorona. At home, I have a, several things on my altar. Marigolds, um, a lot of marigolds. Some of my marigolds died because of the early freeze this year, but also um, sage. Um, so you get to smell that and frankincense. Many pictures of loved ones and pets, students, my love of Selena, many different items. And the color of papel picado is colorful. It's, I decided to be colorful because I think we need a lot more color in our lives right now um, during this hard time. And so, yes, candles, different color glass bottles. And then also I put some cigarettes for my dad and his favorite Pepsi and his Twinkie. And then for my grandma, I put a bowl of mole because she made me love mole. And then also a rosary that she made me, I put on the altar for that we can pray together once again. Todos me dicen el negro llorona. As I stated, I work at Colorado State University Pueblo. And the beautiful thing is that we get to share our traditions at this beautiful place, at a place that serves Latino students, Hispanic serving institution Colorado State University is known for. But also they bring their traditions to this university. And one of those is Dio de los Muertos. I start by gathering students like the Latinx Student Union, maybe the Spanish club, students that are taking Spanish classes and the Spanish professors and I um, collaborate and decide how we're going to make our altar. And our altar has been outside, our altar has been in the library, and this year the altar was going to be in the student center. And what we do is we gather all of our supplies, our flowers, everybody contributes a little bit of something, and then we create this altar, this massive altar. Last year it was about eight feet tall, and so it takes time. We put the papel picado uh, on top of the ceiling, and so it's just beautiful, colorful items. Traditional food happens. We have Tacos Navarro on our campus, and they sponsor us by giving us tacos for our altar to feed our loved ones that are coming back for this time, which I think is so special. All this campus is moving together to support this one um, beautiful day of celebration of our loved the pandemic has affected my students hard. These students that I work with come from rural communities in Colorado, especially in the southeast of Colorado, and that is working through the meatpacking houses working in the dairies, their parents working in the pig farms in Lamar, um, working in Manzanola, picking the watermelon and the onion, harvesting that. And the pandemic has hit harder there, it feels like sometimes. Um, and those stories are really heavy for these students and their, their resiliency is so beautiful for them still to come to the university and know that their studies are important, but also I try to open that space that their families are important and how we celebrate the resiliency of all of them, not just the student, but their family. And then also remembering their loved ones that have passed on during this pandemic. Victoria Obregón of Pueblo, sharing what Dia de los Muertos means to her. It ends today. And our thanks to Colorado Matters producer Ali Budner for putting that segment together. 
Finally today, the Chicano Music Hall of Fame welcomed some new inductees recently. Among them, Los Trujillos, a family band that started more than five decades ago. Because of the pandemic, the group performed to a mostly empty theater at a July induction ceremony, with many spectators watching remotely. Los Trujillos specialize in Tejano music, a blend of Mexican, American, and European styles. They play gigs around the state in normal times, including events for two former Colorado governors. The family patriarch, Augie Trujillo Sr., started the band in 1968. He passed away last year at age 93, but his kids, nephews, and grandkids keep the music alive. Los Trujillos performing via Zoom at Su Teatro in Denver. They were inducted into the Chicano Music Hall of Fame in July. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. (laughs) 